From Steel Valley Media, this is the Frosty Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Frosty Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Frost. Uh, this is supposed to be the Frosty Live Tour. We're supposed to be in Memphis today, but we will do that virtually, no problem. You can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, at FrostyPod. For this very special episode, we have two of our very own league members who are going to tell us the ins and outs of what baseball life is all about. And so let's welcome to the show, Charlie Thurber and Steve Groover. Guys, welcome. Great to be here. Yeah, appreciate you having us on, Derek. And so what I kind of want to start with is a little bit of the background for both of you. You know, how do you go from, you know, little league where, you know, it's a bunch of kids playing and then and you kind of climb up through the ranks. Uh, so, Charlie, we'll start with you. You know, what did that what did that ascension look like for you? Yeah, it was it was crazy. So I, I grew up in a pretty small town, um, but it was definitely like a baseball, pretty baseball centric town um, in upstate New York. And um, Little League just we had a. Relatively speaking, for for our local area, we had a really good all-star team. And as I'm sure basically most anyone who gets to pro ball does when they're that age. But um, the following year, so you're in sixth grade, you know, when you're in your final year of Little League usually. And then the following year in seventh grade, I made the jump to, you know, the the full regulation size field, which was huge. And ended up on like the JV high school team the following year which was just a massive jump, but like that was so crucial um, for my development because not only did I get um, exposure to that field, but, you know, I was playing with older kids all of a sudden instead of um, just kind of dominating the competition, like you have to catch up to the competition. And, um, you know, that was, that was pretty priceless for me. And, you know, thankfully the guys who were older than me kind of welcomed me in. And the following year in eighth grade, I was on the varsity program. And, um, you know, we can get into kind of how that looked, but I got caught up as a pitcher, which was kind of comical because I got absolutely shelled uh, my first outing. And they were like, oh, maybe I don't know if this works. And they let me hit the next game. And I think I went like three for three or something with three doubles as an eighth grader. And, you know, for me, growing up in a small town, I definitely probably wouldn't have had those opportunities to play up like that if I were even in a medium sized city. So, it just gave me a massive confidence boost. And I feel like those years, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth grade for me, like I was able to catch up, succeed, and then surpass the competition. And then 10th, 11th, and 12th grade became all about, um, you know, getting out on a national level, getting on a national travel team, going to um, what we call in baseball. It's like, in football, it'd be like the combine. In baseball, it's it's like national level showcases, and um, it became about kind of throwing your hat into that group. Um, so you, it was it was very clutch for me to be welcomed by my community and be able to kind of have exposure to older players early, and then had a luxury of spending my last three years of high school like basically traveling the country with a bunch of players who ended up playing Division One and pro ball, and just fortunate to kind of get exposure that way. 
So, Charlie, if I could jump in here. So how do you go from, you know, okay, so you're kind of called up in middle school to play with the high school team. Um, at what point do you say, you know what, I'm I'm good enough that I want to to be going to these national showcases? Like, how, how does that process happen? I was, um, that's a great question. I was like, I want it. Like, in Little League, you have that. I think so many kids have that dream. Like, I want to play in the major leagues. I want to play in the major leagues. I want to play in the major leagues. But then that following year, it turned from, like, a dream to a goal. And I think what happened was, you know, I, I decided to work really hard on baseball, um, you know, got with, um, you know, a great hitting coach um, and, you know, a personal trainer and all these things in addition to working with my dad. Um, but just the confidence you get when you are you're competing with kids who are older than you and then you you not even in a arrogant way, but you're surpassing them pretty easily. And they all kind of and I'm sure Steve kind of had the same experience, but like you know, you see yourself passing them and you're way younger than them. And they start, they start almost like pushing you on, like, Hey, you got something like stay focused, work harder. Um, you know, and you're talking about being a seventh or an eighth grader and having a kid who's five or six years older than you, like a senior be like, Hey man, like keep going. And then like your coaches start talking to you a certain way. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you see it in yourself. So then for me, I became very driven to like, okay, what are the goals I need to do to make this dream happen? And you start looking at like, well, I need to, I need to get into the recruiting circuit. I need to get in front of major league scouts. Um, and I need to play really well in these next few years so that, you know, basically I have a resume that I can get on one of these national level teams. And so that was basically the process there. Then obviously you go to university of Tennessee. Yep. Um, and then what happens, uh, what happens after Tennessee? Yeah. So, um, Got on. Uh, I'll backtrack a little bit. Was fortunate to be on a really good travel team with with kids who were more known than I was. You know, they ended up going to Vanderbilt, North Carolina, and and major schools like that. And um, you know, I was able to go into the recruiting circuit um, pretty quickly just from being on their team. A lot of those schools ended up seeing me, and soon I was visiting. Just like Steve, I think we visited a lot of the same schools, but like Virginia and Vanderbilt and Tennessee and. Florida and Mississippi State and Georgia Tech and all these places and getting offers like you're getting offers as like a sophomore or junior and um, it's a fast process so pick Tennessee because um, you know I had decided that it was my goal to play in the SEC um, for baseball you know that the SEC baseball in my opinion is just is just unparalleled it's 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 an incredible experience um, and the competition just you know every year they're pumping out not only first round picks, but like half the draft basically. And um, so I really wanted to go there and I wanted a chance to play early. And I, and um, I love the tradition at Tennessee. So, you know, took a visit there and just seeing a football game and, you know, it just, it was incredible for me. So I love that. Wanted to be a part of it. Went down to Tennessee, um, played for three years there and um, was fortunate to play in a lot of great, um, SEC games against, you know, at the time, LSU and South Carolina, um, and to some extent, Florida um, and Vanderbilt were powers. Um, I know that still reigns true now, but we played in some great games, took those teams down, won some series from them, and we had a, just a supremely talented team. Um, didn't uh, didn't do what we had expected to, and we can get into that later, Steve and I both, but 
man, our team was crazy. I think our whole team was in pro ball literally like five years after our draft year. Like it was crazy, wow. but, um, you know, and fortunate to be around such great guys because guys like Steve and we would all push each other. We all had that, that goal to play at the next level and to, to, to win in college. And, um, you know, we kind of became like survivors and motivators of each other. And we all got drafted, Steve and I, in 2011. And um, I got drafted by the Mets. Um, you know, I, I was hurt my junior year. Um, and so I went really late. I went in the 39th round. But before the season, I was supposed to go in the top 100 picks. Um, and really the only reason I got drafted was because I had a good sophomore year and I had a, I had a really good summer in the Cape Cod league before that, which was an incredible experience. But then you go, um, I don't know if you want me to segue into minor league ball right away, but, um, you know, you go into minor league ball and it's a whole different world because you go from, uh, the sec, you're chartering flights, you're on sleeper buses with flat screen TVs, you're you're eating, you know, creme de la creme restaurants every night. You're getting crazy per diem money. You, you have all the gear. You have like a big league locker room, big league cages, and then boom, all of a sudden you're in the minor leagues um, with none of that. You know, like you, you have peanut butter and bread on your spread table, and you have, <laughs> you have like mismatching dumbbells in your weight room, and um, you know they throw you like a shirt and a pair of shorts for batting practice, and it's just a whole different world, but. Um, it was a really cool journey. It's hard to kind of sum it up in a couple of minutes, but I hope that gives a decent timeline of it. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, I have a couple spots we'll, we'll dig into, yeah. um, you know, a little bit more in depth, but you just kind of want to get like that, that overall background. So that's really, that's a really cool story. Um, Steve, how about you? And I know, I know Steve's path a little bit more obviously than, than Charlie's path, um, you know, so Steve, kind of same question over to you. You know, what, what did that what did that path look like from you know skate zone at age eleven <laughs> to you know playing uh, playing minor league ball? Yeah, well, I will start at skate zone. You know, we'll throw this out there for the people that uh, <laughs> want to hear the story. We'll keep it brief, but you know, obviously, I got my start where when I really got my start was at eleven years old. Yeah, you know, I had the Joe Reedy on the team with me who, you know, really pushed me to the next level every day. Even at 11, you know, he was just the motivator. <laughs> Joe was at the peak of his game back then. Melissa's chiming in over here. The commish. <laughs> but, no, you know, I mean, at that point, you know, I knew I had something. You know, we didn't know then. I wasn't the spectacular by any means at that point, but I was left-handed and could throw over the plate. Like, it was a, it was a good start. But I would say, you know, my biggest, the biggest thing for me was when I was 15, I was fortunate enough to go to Cincinnati to play in a tournament against a team called Midland, the Midland Redskins. And they're basically, yeah, I didn't know at that point, but they're the team in Ohio. They're the big travel team. You know, if you're on that team, you're a elite talent you know they probably have five or six guys that go out of high school in the top three rounds every year like they're they're the real deal so i got picked up to go to their tournament just happened to pitch against them and beat them uh, it was a pretty big deal but again i didn't even know it at that point i didn't know who they were they still stomped us the next two times they faced us like they gave it to us after that but we go home 
And then two days later, I get a call from their coach and says, hey, we're moving on to the next tournament. You know, we want you to come with us. And so I got to go. Yeah, I wasn't anything special on the team. They Again, they had studs from all over the country. You know, they bring in guys from Texas and North Carolina and just guys from all over the country to come play. So it was fun. And then I got the invite to go back the next season and went and played that full season. And you go from being in the Struthers League, which is great, but, you know, you might have a, you know, you got the Youngstown State coach coming to watch in those games and maybe it's you know bowling green and like the local ohio schools every game that we had you know our batting practice we would have 30 scouts sitting around watching our guys take bp in cages like yeah it was just another world so i was just fortunate enough to be around enough for you know while scouts are there watching our hitters i'm out there pitching and it's oh like this guy might be good (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I went from you know, hoping to play in the state to now getting looks from you know the future Tennessee and all of these other schools that are there looking at our elite prospects. You know, I was just kind of associated with it, which was just completely awesome. But that's where I got kind of my push into that world. And so I, I guess was that was that point at fifteen when you you know, kind of like Charlie talked about, like when you realized that you were going to be, you were going to kind of be special, you weren't going to be the normal, you know, play ball in high school and and then, you know, the, your career ends. Yeah. You know, it really was at that point again, you know, I think my sights were probably on, you know, Akron or Kent or YSU, you know, it was like, yeah, I want to go play to get an education and then at that point, you know, when you start getting those letters from Georgia, Tennessee, Vandy, you know, all of these letters from coaches start coming in and you're like, holy crap, I'm on the radar. Like, how do these people know about me? Like, why do they want to come see me? Why do they want to talk to me? Like, it's crazy. And yeah, I'd say like, that's kind of when you realize that, wow, like I could do something with this. So then, uh, you know, to kind of take us through then, you know, you play high school ball, um, and I know you, you traveled around uh, in the off-seasons there, too. Yeah, so high school ball, you know, I was fortunate enough, I think, I started off on the freshman team, at least, you know, trying out, they had me with the freshman group, and then by the time tryouts were over, they asked me to go to Myrtle Beach, so our team goes to Myrtle Beach every year for a big tournament, and at that point, they were taking JV and varsity. So they asked me to go with JV to this tournament, which was awesome. You know, at that point, that was a huge deal. And then I go out and I got a chance to pitch and just crushed it for the JV team. And then by the time we got back, I was you know, being asked to come up to the varsity team. So that just kind of opened up a world too. You know, I was by no means expecting to make that jump, but then just getting up and, you know, I don't know if you remember Alex Oles. Yeah, we had Alex Oles, we had a guy named John Mang. Both guys were, you know, Alex was a lefty, John was a righty, but they were both through upper 80s, low 90s. Yeah, I'm sitting there as a freshman, you know, probably in the low 80s, if that. You know, so I had two great role models, even at that level going into it, that really, you know, kind of set my expectations for what I could and should be. So just having them there every day, you know, John was one of the hardest workers I knew. So just kind of having that role model really helped step me up to that next level. 
but then, you know, obviously I was there as a freshman and then made my way through the league, you know, for the next couple of years and kind of made a name for myself within the league and at the school. And yeah, that's kind of where the, the high school career went. And I will say, you know, I think, you know, my junior year, I got hurt too. So that kind of, yeah, that kind of put a damper on everything. I ended up tearing my rotator cuff and it's a pretty big deal for pitchers. A lot of schools ended up backing out on offers or even just really talking to me at that point. So kind of limited the list of potential schools that I had to go to. And Tennessee's coach, Fred Corral, was one of the guys that stood by me the whole time. And he was just a great guy. And he was a big reason why I ended up making the decision to go to Tennessee. And so I want to break into this this college recruiting because, um, again, being a kind of an outsider watching you know Steve go through this was really, really fascinating uh, to see. It's this whole like underworld that, that nobody really knows unless you're in it. Um, and so, Steve, uh, I'll stick with you for right now. Um, so what does that process look like? You talked about the letters and all that. Um, and I just I remember, you know, without without naming schools and stuff, just a ton of text messages uh, coming through and, and just all this communication uh, that, that was happening. And, and you know, what, what did that what was that like? It, it's interesting, you know, because I, you know, I couldn't, I don't remember exact specifics on rules, but there's a lot of very strict rules when it comes to when coaches can contact you, how they can contact you. Um, you know, so there was a lot of like, they, they might be allowed to call you once a week or, you know, they can only send you messages at certain times during this recruiting process. So it was just really interesting on ways that they kind of go about that. But but yeah, you know, you slowly, you know, you get those letters and then you kind of start to make a connection with all of these different coaches and slowly, you know, you go visit the schools you're really interested in, you know, Kent State, like I love their coaches. And now you know, two of them are at Georgia and they're just crushing it. But uh, yeah, I got to go to a couple basketball games with them and go hang out. And yeah, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of rules, a lot of ways to get around the rules Sometimes I'm pretty sure they violated those rules, especially <laughs> when it comes to those texts and all of that, you know, they're, they kind of, they, they flirt with the, the line at least. If, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's just a, it's a whirlwind, honestly, you know, you're starting to get these calls and texts from so many different people um, and just honestly trying to figure out like where you want to go at the time and what you want to do and kind of balancing all of that is just a lot. Yeah. Especially at that age when you really don't understand it, it, it takes a while for it to really sink in. Charlie, we'll pop over to you. I mean, is that, was that your, your experience as well, or did you have something a little different? Yeah, for sure. So it started for me. I went to a Penn state camp in eighth grade and left the camp and they were like whenever we can officially like write you this and like tell you this like you have a full like you have a full scholarship like (laughs) and so like at that point for me I was like okay like I need to like get out there and so I remember the awkward thing for me was like I don't remember Steve was it July 1st before your junior year where like you could actually get letters I mean this has all changed since we were 
It's weird. That's, it was like July 1st, I think. That sounds have, right. Yeah. yeah. I remember like that was a big day. So like before that, I had I had been able to play in front of Virginia as a freshman and a sophomore. And basically they had an offer that was expiring on July 1st of of you know whatever you're before your junior year when you can get letters because that's shady yeah they were like listen <laughs> like we want you but like we're not going to get into a battle and like i wanted to go there i actually was like literally like hey like yes i'm going to come here i'm going to come here and i didn't technically verbally commit but like i was all in it was a good offer they were an ascending program and they actually went to omaha like while we were in school but I just was like, I couldn't get over that. I was like, how are you not going to let me at least like hear other people out? And I just was like, you know what? No, like <laughs> that's messed up. Like they're going to make this expire, you know, like when I can talk to other schools. So I ended up waiting for other schools. And I vividly remember like July 1st was a huge day because I like ran out to the mailbox and like I had all these letters from like a bunch of different schools. Like, and I was so pumped and, uh, but, like, they're just letters, right? Like, what does that mean? Like, people, they send out mass mass letters, you know? They're pretty generic. And then, so, like, when you get a handwritten one, that was cool. I didn't really get a lot of texts, um, but I did get a good amount of phone calls. And for me, the coolest part was um, my, so my, the travel ball coach, I ended up playing for a team that was similar to Midland. We weren't as good as Midland. We were pretty damn good. We were you know, Midland's like a top three, top two, you know, type of program. And we were like a top 15, but we had a lot of great players. And my, my travel ball coach was like, Hey, I really want you to take as many visits as possible. Like go see these schools, go, um, you know, unofficial visits and like wait it out and take your official visits too. And so like being able to like leave school all the time and just be like, ah, I'm going to Mississippi this weekend. See ya. Like I'm out on Wednesday and I'll see you next Tuesday or whatever. <laughs> like I used to do that. <laughs> I did that all the damn time. Like, every, like for, uh, you know, the end of my junior year. And then obviously like my senior fall, because I waited till like actual signing day to sign. Um, and I took like my five official visits and I took unofficials and like, just being able to like, I'm such a sports fan. Like, so in general, like I love following football and basketball. And I was never really a, like, I was a baseball fan when I was a kid, but I became a baseball player. So it was so cool to like see all these different campuses and hear all the different like recruiting styles. And it's funny, like, and I'm sure we can get into this, like just with, I think the big thing with coach Corral was like, it's funny, even though he was a pitching guy, he was the guy who sold me on Tennessee as well, because he just was this authentic person. Right. And you just have so many like car salesmen out there, like they're just listing off, you know, the different things their school has to offer. And like, you know, they're telling you everything you want to hear. Um, but like something about the, the handful of authentic guys who really look you in the eye and they connect with you and your family. And they're like, I got you. Like, I'm going to take care of you. And Coach Corral was definitely that guy. I remember <laughs> I remember sitting down with him. Um, on my official visit to Tennessee and just like, he really stuck out as, as the kind of guy you can trust with your career. And unfortunately, like he ended up moving on our sophomore year. That was a big bummer for, I know Steve and myself. Um, but yeah, it was just an incredible experience. Like I definitely like wrote it out, um, to its maximum and tried to like embrace the whole 
thing, you know, and I've kept like all the letters and all the pamphlets and books and stuff. And <laughs> I have, you know, I'm gonna keep them in my office and it's crazy, man. They look so old now. And I'm like, gosh, like, this is nuts. Like, how do these look so old already? But, um, yeah. Hey, let, let me jump in here. Let me ask you a question. Give me, give me the most underwhelming place you took a visit to. And then the place that just blew you away. Cause I know I got my, at least my most underwhelming, but I want to hear what you got. Oh man. So this is really going to blow everybody's mind and it's going to be like, man, Charlie's an idiot. But for me, the most underwhelming was South Carolina, which is so stupid. Cause they won a championship while you guys were playing yeah. Tennessee, didn't they? they Two of them. One of the <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Wait, they have one of the top facilities in college baseball. They won at least one championship, if not two, while we were in school. Um, incredible program, incredible everything, campus. But I remember that field was not constructed yet, you know. And Oh, no. And so it was just like a, basically a pile of concrete. And they like – their old field wasn't that nice. And, and we were in um, uh, East Cobb. And I know, Steve, you played in that tournament too. And so, like, my mom and I just drove up there one day, and uh, their assistant coach, who's now at Clemson, uh, Monty Lee, like, toured me around, and, like, he's like, can you envision this? Can you envision this? Like, we're going to build a stadium here, and, like, we're going to win championships and all this stuff. And and I was like, well, that all sounds great, but, like, I don't know you that well. Like, we haven't built up a relationship. Like, I don't know, like, how you build a program and this, that, and the other thing. And I just, like, didn't necessarily, like, see it. Like, I didn't feel that connection. You know what I mean? And, like, literally all of it happened. So, like, big whiff on my end on that one. <laughs> um, yeah, so big whiff there. And then, honestly, my best experience recruiting by far and away was Mississippi State. Yes. Um, by I... far and away. I was, like, 90% sold on going there until, like, I made the switch to Tennessee. Uh, Coach McNichol and Coach Raffo were the best people ever. I love them both. And, like, they treated me like family, like, while I was in high school. And my my travel ball coach, like, they have a big role in this, right? Like, you trust them, and they, they know these people, and they're like, listen, like, I don't want to send you to this type of program, but, like, I trust these people. They'll take care of you, whatever. Well, they were saying that, like, Mississippi State, like, I was destined to go there. And, and Steve, like, I want to get into your side of it, but, like, Mississippi State is probably the baseball school, right? Like Alabama's like the football school or whatever. North Carolina's like the basketball school. Like Mississippi State is like their sport is legit baseball. Like on a weekend they're getting 15,000 people there. Like there's like smoke from all the cookouts like camping over the stadium. Like it's just like American baseball. Awesome. Iconic stadium too. Now unbelievable. They, yeah. Unbelievable. They've switched it up now. They redid a lot of it. Like they have yeah. yeah, they don't have the junkyard out there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they switched that up, but still it was just it was iconic, man. They live for baseball. Yeah, for sure. And and the one thing I so Coach Raffo and Coach McNichol was awesome too. I, I'm sure you'll have more insight on him, but like he would he would call and, and write me too, and I, I really liked him a lot. But Coach Raffo was my guy. Like I literally felt like he was me, but like 30 years older. And I was like, <laughs> this is my dude. Like this is my guy. And I was like, how can I not? I was literally looking for schools to like do something to beat Mississippi State, and I can't say that any of them did, but 
there was a there was this sketchy feeling with with Coach Polk and and Derek Coach Ron Polk is like the legend in college baseball as a college coach. Like he coached Georgia. He he's he was the one who brought Mississippi State to their like absolute prime with like Rafael Palmero and Will Clark, and they won all these titles with him. But like he's he's getting up there. And they weren't like explaining how it was going to transition. Like they were insinuating that he was done and like coach Rafa was going to take over, but there was this overarching feeling that like, there's no guarantee of that. And like, if I'm about to come here for three or four years and this guy leaves, like, and something else happens, like, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. Like, this is great. I love it here. Like, it's amazing. But, and so literally that's exactly what happened. Uh, Coach Polk retired and they did not hire Coach Raffo and they hired uh, John Cohen from Kentucky, who's now the athletic director. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't go there because like literally the guys who took me on my official visit and everything, they were like, you know, we're still good and everything like that. But like the experience is like night and day different. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's my answer to that group. What do you got? All right, so my most underwhelming ended up being Duke. Okay. I wanted to love it. You know, just going into that, like, that campus, and you'd think it's, like, a great environment. They had, yeah, their stadium was metal bleachers. Yeah, it, it looked like a high school stadium. It looked like you, Hogwarts. It looked like Quidditch <laughs> You had your one cage next to the field that had like n- nothing on top of it. If it rained, you're done. Yeah. You know, uh, you had to dress in the, you had locker rooms at the basketball stadium and you had to walk to the baseball stadium, which wasn't a, like, that was like a solid <laughs> half mile. <laughs> like there was just yeah. so much like for a school that you would think has like such a great tradition. Right, like right. It just was, uh, I, I wanted to love it. And then I left there and it was just sad, but I'm with you. Like Mississippi state was one. Of, it was in my top three when I was making the decision, it came down to basically Tennessee and Mississippi state. Dude, I did not know this. I don't mean, yeah. that, but like, that's so crazy because like I talk about it with Kia all the time. I'm like, Oh, like Mississippi state. and like this, that, and the other thing. I still think about it, but that's crazy that we would end up so tight and that like, we still almost ended up at the same school. I know. Right. That's cool. It came down to the distance, you know, like ability for the guys to come visit, uh, my parents to come see games, you know, that's not a small difference. Right. Uh, Yeah. uh, Scholarship. Yeah. Tennessee was giving me a better scholarship. And then, like you said, with the coaching issues, there were just so many little things going on that I couldn't pull that trigger. Yeah. But I love, yeah, they were, they were in my top three for sure. I, so Mississippi State by far like doubled my scholarship from Tennessee, but like that coaching issue weirded me out. And like I love the guys there, but like I, you could just sense something was up. And mm-hmm. I gotta go back. I gotta re-answer this question. Like I told you guys, I'm gonna like I gotta get the wheels turning a little bit before these <laughs> thoughts start flowing. South Carolina is not my answer because North Carolina was my dream school. I have North Carolina Tar Heel wallpaper in my childhood bedroom still there my daughter's name charlotte like i was tar heel everything and they just like so like they liked me right but like i don't even know why they like had me on campus like i i just don't know like they had me on campus 
And I feel like I felt like the recruiting coordinator, like at least the guy from South Carolina, like he wanted me there. And like, you know, like I respected that. And they had like, you know, all these first rounders the year before, like Justin Smoke and all these guys. And, and that was cool or whatever. North Carolina, man, like I swear this guy did not want to be with me. But like he took he like reluctantly took me on a tour after asking me to come. And I'm like so excited. I'm like, this is it. Like I'm gonna like, go to my dream school, and you know I'm walking around. I'm like Carolina blue everywhere. And like he was just so unenthusiastic. Like they've since renovated the field, but at the time I was kind of like, eh. Like the field is very kind of like you said about Duke. Like it's not like it was better than Duke's because I went to Duke too, but it was like not not great. Like it was like our old field at Tennessee, kind of Steve. Like just kind of before it got renovated. Yeah, it was underwhelming. I, I took a trip there too. Yeah, and and uh, I remember um, <laughs> it's funny because I crossed paths with this guy later at, in the SEC, ended up in South Carolina. But I remember like getting back to the tour on campus, campus, and he was like, you know, everywhere else I was like pretty prized and like you know roll out the red carpet, and here's like, yeah, you know, like I don't know, we might be able to offer you the minimum. Like we don't offer, you know, here we <laughs> offer our pitchers a hundred percent, and like made up some crap about, and I have, I have three friends on my travel team committed in North Carolina. So I knew this wasn't the case. He's like, you know, maybe we'll get you some money, like creatively, if you want to come here. And I'm like, if I want to come here, like, do you want me to come here? So I was like, that was the thing for me. Like that was the most disappointing. And I remember being like pissed off about that. So anyway, fun memories. I just, I just dug that one up. I had chosen to forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Repress that one. Yeah. So, all right, so you guys both end up at, at Tennessee, and what is a day in the life of, of a D1 athlete, uh, you know, kind of, I, I guess, during the season, during the offseason, you know, what, what, does that, what does that look like? A D1 yeah. athlete at Tennessee while we were there, or just a D1 athlete in general? Uh, I guess, I guess maybe a little <laughs> bit of both, because there aren't, I mean, because I'm guessing not D1 too many athletes, people listening. You have D1 athletes, and then you have what Steve and I <laughs> live. <laughs> <laughs> and like i'm gonna let steve start on this one but like i'm just gonna like open us up with that like. all right I'll, I'll give you like just a general you know i don't know we didn't have too many 6 a.m workouts you know they were they were mixed in there we had times where we had like monday and friday 6 a.m workouts but not too often during the year um, it was kind of sporadic, just dependent on like what time, like what time of the year it was. Like if you were in season, off season, we sprinkled them in. Um, but off season, or yeah, off season, like I don't know. We typically at the field by one, one thirty. You know, you you get your classes in by twelve. You typically try to be done by like one at the latest if possible, and you're pretty much at the field from there. So you've got a cafeteria that is honestly mainly only for athletes. And right now, like what we had compared to what they have now, like if you want later, I can give you a little like comparison between when we were there and then when I went back and was coaching and just the differences in the amenities. It's pretty like even it's crazy what they have now compared to what we had, but yeah, we had a cafeteria that was basically just for athletes. Technically, other people could get in. Like, you couldn't just make it for athletes, but it was just for athletes. Yeah. Like, when a regular uh, student asks, like, hey, where's that cafeteria? It's like, oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's closed. 
but yeah, so yeah, we had solid food every day and then you're at the field pretty much from 1 30 or 2 until 7 7 30 maybe 8 and then especially our first year you show up your first year and you had to have 10 hours a week at the uh tutoring center you didn't have to get tutored but like we had to go and like study there and log so many hours so basically you get done with practice and everybody just leaves and goes over to this place which is a terrible idea because when you have 15 freshmen all going there together, that whole idea of like putting us in a room together and thinking we're going to study was pretty hilarious. Even if you made us be quiet, everyone's just sitting there texting, like talking together. And then you put like all of the female athletes in there with them. Like if you wanted us to study, you made it, you basically did the opposite effect of what they were really going for. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that was kind of the off season schedule. You know, you're pretty much at the field five to six hours a day working on your craft, uh, you know, working out for an hour or two. And then, uh, you know, you have your positional meetings um, and then practice for two to three hours. And that's always, I don't know, that, our practice compared to what other practices were might have been a little different, but then you have your post punishment runs, which were a pretty frequent thing for us. <laughs> um, that was about it, Charlie. You got anything else you want to add in there? Where to begin on this one? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it was for me, it was 24 hours because I was waking up at 3 a.m., like text from coach being like, <laughs> Did you, like I'm I'm up awake right now. My wife hates me because I'm thinking about how bad you were today, or like whatever the hell. <laughs> oh man! So, like, for okay, me, let's twenty four seven experience. Like, um, but yeah, I think the schedule is pretty dead on. I mean, so our like our training was so intense. I think that's the thing I took from it. Like, like our non-punishment running was like putting it was like squat to you drop it was called the stud program or like medley of pain and you would medley of pain medley of pain we'd wear we'd wear these camo shirts on 6 a.m on a friday Mm -hmm. and we'd all just be dreading this and we'd go in and we would literally max do like 10 sets of max squat 10 sets of max deadlift 10 sets of max all this stuff to where you couldn't couldn't even move and then you'd strap a weighted base vest on go over to Neyland stadium run like 20 sets of of, of stadium stairs and then like at the very end like everyone would like take off the weighted vest and then you would have to go to gate 10 which is the big long gate at Neyland stadium and then you'd like they legitimately like try to like watch you sprint and like evaluate your speed at that point like up the up the ramp and like like your legs are just like jiggling and like then you go like you literally have class at eight that you're like you have to rush to and you're just like i can't and like knoxville is so many hills and like stairs and like i remember like literally like pulling myself up the stairs to get to my a.m class every friday um so that was cool but it i mean i think it was helpful like i i appreciate those workouts at the same time um because they did make us stronger and um you know made you feel like you could kind of conquer anything but yeah i mean groovers got it pretty pretty head on with you know practice was quote unquote three hours but it was usually like five 
and then um, yeah, for NCAA compliance, we're calling yeah. it three hours. Yeah, <laughs> it we, was, had, we had an extensive. It was NCAA. three to six. Yeah, we had an extensive NCAA investigation into our hours, um, <laughs> and you know everyone was basically pulled in and told to lie about it. But like that's not unique to us. I think everybody yeah. has you know voluntary this and voluntary that, but you know because you have to. How else do you get a leg up? Mm-hmm. And like really, you are you are doing more than working a full-time job. You know, when you're in class all morning, you eat as fast as you can, you go to your workout and then you go to the field and then you're in study hall till 11 and then boom, restart. So, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a full schedule for sure. My favorite quote is this isn't mandatory, but I'll know if you weren't there. Yeah, <laughs> That was, that was the classic. This is how I get around the NCAA requirements. Yeah, it isn't mandatory, but if you don't show up, you'll be running around the field with books, <laughs> holding books over your head in front of everyone at our next practice. Like, oh. for the whole practice. we literally we had somebody run for a three-hour game, yeah. holding holding a book over his head, running around the outfield oh, <laughs> during a during a full nine hours or nine-inning scrimmage. We all had to do that. We felt team. so bad, man. Remember that oh, one time we all had around to do campus? That? Yeah, we had to do it. Yeah, not a non-politically correct Indian run yeah. <laughs> uh, around campus with books over our head during like, you know, it was like one o'clock. So it's like while people are getting out of class, you got these <laughs> 35 idiots running around campus with the books over their head. Yeah. And the, guy, and the guy on a scooter in front just yelling the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I remember all the time, like, I'm, like, in the middle of class, and it's, like, meeting in 10 minutes, be here. And it's, like, dude, I have class for another 40 minutes. And, like, you had to just go. And yeah. I was, like. Yeah, but then you, know, you get like, in trouble if you're not in class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, the, so, we had this thing called the Monster, which owned me in college and still to some extent does. Uh, it's basically a figure of speech for the anxiety monster that like get you because like you know you're always needed in like three different places slash whatever so like everyone would always get on me because i would have the monster all the time like it just was like it was it was fun it was funny but it was also like pretty stressful i'm gonna say this charlie had it probably one of the worst of any of us because he was our coach's like pet like he just our coach just eyed in on Charlie partially I think just because he knew you know he was tough and how good he could be like Char- like he literally like he said like he would get texted like three in the morning yeah you know Corral wasn't texting me at three in the morning you know Corral yeah. you you get to the field and he's giving you a nice pep talk while Charlie's gonna laced into you know <laughs> it was just my, my wife hates me <laughs> my one day I showed up to the field. This was before my first ever start. I showed up to the field. Um, I think it was against Ohio, like University of Ohio. I don't, is it University of Ohio or Ohio University? I forget. Ohio University. Oh, yeah. Ohio yeah. University. And, uh, and yeah, so I show up to the field and I get to my locker. And the biggest, like, FedEx box I've ever seen in front of my locker, my locker's empty. All my stuff is in, in the box. And it, there's a prepaid shipping label to to Binghamton University baseball facility uh, for my stuff. And so I'm like, 
I'm like, are you kidding me? And like, I'm in the middle of like a rut, right? Like the coaches have been on me and like this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, this has got to be a joke. Turns out like, no, it's not a joke. So like, I'm like about to like leave the facility. Like I'm like, whatever, I'm done. So I'm standing outside in the parking lot with my box of crap. Like I didn't want to talk to anyone. Coach pulls in and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean what I'm doing? You had my stuff packed up in a box ready to ship freaking home to Binghamton, the, the baseball facility. Like, I'm calling around trying to find a place to play. He was like, well, you're in the lineup, so you better figure it out and, like, get ready. And, like, at this point, the team's on the field, like, taking BP. And, my like, the problem with me is then, like, somehow I would respond to that stuff. So that day I went out and I went, like, three for three. And then so from that point on, from that point on, that's just how I got coached. And, like, I mean, you can kind of understand that. He's like, well, that works. So, like, I'm just going to keep doing the craziest stuff I can think of. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, so. Charlie wakes up, his bed's in the pool. It's like, hey, uh, you got to get the practice. Don't get wet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, man. That was. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, like, that's honest. Like, he did that so often. And Charlie got the worst of it. But my, I'll tell you, my first time ever starting, I ended up coming in against Louisville. It, I think it was a weekday game, but Louisville at that point was a top five team in the nation, like legit. So I'm yeah. out there as a freshman, you know, like it's our second week of the season. And I, I gave up a couple runs in the first and I think two in the second. So I'm out there in the third and I'm struggling again. Like I'm just, yeah, at that point I'm overwhelmed he comes out to give a to the mound. And when he comes out to the mound, you know, when your head coach comes out to the mound, you're done. Like, that's kind of a thing, you know, like when your pitching coach comes out, you're getting advice. Like you're, you know, it's a chance to recover. When your head coach comes out, he's pulling you. So he comes out and I'm just, I'm already pissed off. So I'm about to hand him the ball. And he just looks at me. He's like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> do, you, do you not, do you not want to be here? Like, I'm, I'll go get you a plane ticket home right now. Like, and he just walks over. He's like, I'm all right. You finish up and I'm getting you out. You know, your, your plane ticket will be ready in the morning. Like, it's just like, holy shit. Like you don't already have this pressure on you as a freshman. Like, you know, looking, looking back on it. Like I get it. Like I certainly get it. Right. Like, but at the time it was like, man, it was tough. But at the same time, like, this stuff happens everywhere. Like, it's, like, he had to get it from somewhere. Like, he came from, like, the Clemson tree, like, the Jack Leggett tree. And, like, obviously it worked pretty well for him because Clemson with Jack Leggett went to, I don't know how many, you know, Omaha College World Series appearances. Um, So that was kind of, like, the methodology from which our program was built was, like, the Clemson baseball blueprint. So, you know, that's kind of the the – the off season, the in season. What does game day look like? Uh, we'll start with a home game, Charlie. Like, what is what does game day look like? Um. So yeah, game day is obviously like you're excited all day, and you, you get to the park, and um, there's always an itinerary up. Um, basically, you get there early, and in college, you're kind of handheld through the situation because you're still developing how you're going to be a professional, so to speak. Like you're you're a quasi professional. And like you're still taking classes in the morning and you get to the field and, you know, for a hitter, you're you're going to probably get a workout in at some point, either in the morning or um, in the early afternoon after class. Um, nothing too crazy, but like 
something to be activated um, and, and retain your strength because it's really easy to break down if you're not keeping up on your lifting and, and everything during the year. So kind of start out with that workout. And then for me, um, I would always go out to the cages before everyone got there and um, do my own routine, um, kind of off the tee, do some front toss, um, try to try to just really feel good. Like if I usually had maybe two cues or two, two like very simple results I wanted to see just in my swing before I started seeing like live pitching. And so I just try to really calmly recreate those without a lot of effort and kind of get loose and warmed up and locked in so that later um, when I get into batting practice, I'm ready to go. So um, after you do that, you usually have some downtime. Um, we'd, I'd go visit the cafeteria, um, you know, eat, eat basically a lunch or, you know, a pregame meal. And then, you know, you kind of uni up, you, you hit the field and then you're taking, you're warming up, you're throwing, you stay on your throwing program, your long toss, and you take infield, outfield before the game. Um, you take batting practice before the game. And you just, you know, depending on the point of the year, like for a hitter and a defender, you usually have something specific you're working on pregame. So, you know, maybe that day, um, you know, I've been making my outs on the ground to the second baseman or something. That's very common for me, ground out to second base. So my, my spray chart is like maroon to the second baseman. So for me, it was usually like, I'm going to let this ball travel and I'm going to drive hard line drives like at the shortstop's head or, you know, in the left center field, like the first few rounds, I'm just going to hit the ball hard on a line in the middle of the field. And then, um, you know, if I'm feeling good, I'll open it up on the last few rounds and just stop thinking about where I'm hitting the ball and just let it fly. Um, if I feel like I need to stay with a smaller focus, I'll continue just trying to spray line drives. Um, and then you kind of have a base running routine where you're doing the same thing. Like maybe today I'm working on uh, my reads from second base or my reads from first base or my reads from third base. You can do that while guys are hitting. Um, and then the same thing defensively. So, you know, batting practice for me as an outfielder was, was gold because I could work on a different thing every day. I could, I could line up really shallow and specifically work on balls over my head um, or playing the ball off the fence, or I could line up deeper and I could work on knowing how many steps I had to the warning track, you know, trying to get up and rob balls, trying to, you know, just have a better awareness of my surroundings, or I could work on, you know, ground balls and line drives and my footwork to come through and, and make better throws into the infield or home plate. So just a very specific um, and calculated routine as a team that we each had to take individually and kind of have specific goals with um, kind of going into game time. And then after that ends, you just kind of have a minute to hang in the locker room, listen to music. Um, for me, I always like to watch video of like my success um, to kind of, you know, put myself in that place mentally. Um, but everybody has a different routine. Some guys listen to music, some guys, you know, just talk, some guys, you know, I don't know what everyone does, but for me, I would watch video and just kind of stay chill before first pitch where you go out there and, and you play for nine innings. Steve, how about you? So it kind of depends on what type of pitcher you are, you know, if you're, you know, and, you know, what day it is, you know, as a starter, you know, if it's your day starting compared to any of the other days, it's way different, obviously. 
But uh, yeah, between a starter and the bullpen guys, it's pretty different. But in college, yeah, I was pretty much a starter most of the way through. So I'll speak to that a little bit. Uh, game day kind of sucks leading up to it, especially early on when I was afraid not to show up on time. <laughs> it's, you know, but by my junior year, I was I would show I was... up, you know, while BP was starting. You know, I'm not coming early because early on, you know, I, I would show up with everyone else, you know, at two o'clock. I'm sitting there for five hours before I'm doing anything. I'm not allowed to be out in the field. You know, I'm out there, like, if I'm out there shagging BP, I get yelled at because I'm wasting energy. If I'm doing anything, <laughs> if I'm moving, I'm getting yelled at for wasting my energy before a game. Like, that couple jobs is really going to make a difference. So you I'm, sorry, I'm sorry to see why everybody hates pitchers. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm getting it. Like, I just get yelled. Like, literally, I like I try to go hang out outside and like, hey, it's 85 degrees out here. What are you doing? Get inside. Like, oh, shit. Like, I just want to do something. I'm sitting staring at a wall for four hours. So that, you know, I, I got used to showing up around time BP started. So at least they only had to sit around for like two hours before a game started. Yeah, but for me, I would show up. I would kind of, I would, I like to shower when I got to the field, just kind of get that heat, warm up a little bit, put the jersey on. And then I would legit, I would go into our training room and just stretch a little bit or go into the weight room, especially by our junior year when we had a really nice weight room under the stadium. Uh, I would just go do some light exercise and just kind of get my body moving a little bit, go hang out outside. Uh, watch our batting practice a little bit and then within probably an hour and a half of game time I would meet with our coach kind of go over their lineup for the day you know once we had their lineup we'd be able to talk about the order you know I'd be able to get their stats the big thing for me was always the last 10 days or the their last 10 games and what they did because it kind of gives you a picture of where they're at in the moment compared to just, you know, a general season long stats. But I'd be able to look at, you know, have they do they strike out a lot, which really just means they're willing to chase pitches, um, you know, their slug, slugging percentage, little things like that that really give me an idea of what type of hitter they are and what kind of things they do. And just kind of talk about a general game plan for different hitters. Um, and then I would go stretch some more, you know, within 45 minutes of the game, you typically go out and start warming up and throwing. Uh, typically with about 15 minutes before game time, I like to be on the mound. It gives me about eight minutes or so on the mound. And then about five minutes in the dugout before you're heading out to the field. Now, how does that change when you guys are on the road? Um, Steve will stick with you. So, you know, you're, you're going to be starting a game on the road. Uh, you know, I, I imagine it's very, very different. Yeah. The biggest difference is really when you start everything throwing wise, you know, like all of the pregame stuff is really the same as the starter. You know, you're still just hanging out. You find somewhere to relax and just go through your mental stuff, talk to the coach. You know, you're doing all the mental preparation you need to do. Now, the big difference is that I really wouldn't start playing catch until maybe five minutes, five to ten minutes before the game. Like, And a lot of times I wanted to be on the mound with maybe only three to five minutes left before the game starting. And that way I'm really finishing 
my mound routine you know, as the game's starting. I wanted to throw maybe five more pitches once the game has started on the mound and then get into the dugout. And that way I still kind of have that five minutes to relax before I'm getting out there for my first. Like if you're doing the same routine and ending at that same point, you might be sitting in the dugout for 20 minutes before that first, you know, before you get out there to throw your first pitches. And it, that, you know, that longevity of time really can throw you off. Charlie, you know, I know as you talked about the amount of time that you would spend before the game, um, you know, Groover sitting there, you know, playing Xbox while you were taking BP, <laughs> uh, you know, so on, on an away game, you know, how does that change as, as one of those guys who's, you know, first guy in, last guy out, um, you know, how does that change on an away game? Oh, my gosh. I heard so many. How many times did you say relaxing, Steve? I, I had no idea. I had no dude, idea. Like, why dude, we get yelled at. Dude, I, I, that's awesome. Kudos hey, to you. I'll say that's only game day. You know, like the rest of the week, you know, that next day, if I pitched Friday, on Saturday, I'm coming in, you know, at the same time as everyone else. And then I'm in the gym, yeah. you know, within, you know, the first, you know, so I'm doing a pretty heavy workout while they're on the field. And then I go out and shag BP with them, do all of the extra work. Yeah, yeah. so. Honestly, oh, like game day for a starting pitcher is, yeah, and they say it all the time, but that's by far your easiest day of the week. Yeah, for sure. I'm just giving you a hard time. I mean, <laughs> honestly, like every practice, I just remember us being on the field working on stuff and the pitchers would just go run. Like they would just, oh be my gone. God, they would be running for four hours. Well, we, I mean, maybe five or six, like we'd just be on the field working on who knows what, and the pitchers would just be gone running. Which was great because they were out of the way, but like everyone kind of felt <laughs> yeah. so, And honestly, that's the only reason they made us do it too, is yeah. they're just like, well, shit, what do we have the pitchers do? Yeah. We got, um, get, go, go run. Get, yeah. get me three miles in to, the day. Run to Alcoa and back. Why don't you guys run to the airport and back real quick? <laughs> so it was, it was, why don't you go pick up the recruits this weekend at the airport and then, uh, <laughs> You can drive them back once you get there. <laughs> There's a car but waiting. Back to your question, Derek. Um, yeah, so I love playing on the road for a number of different reasons. First of all, everyone had a better stadium than us and got a better, got more fans than we did, except for Kentucky. So, you know, like you're on the road and you're at LSU, so like, or you're at Mississippi State, or you're at, you know, South Carolina, whatever. Like most of the time like you're just running on adrenaline because you're like i'm gonna be playing in front of ten thousand plus tonight like that's that that pumped me up like i i love playing in front of a lot of people and i love like just the kind of like your best versus my best like i'm going against a a weekend starter tonight on an sec ranked team like let's go like i'm ready to go so like that that energy for me like i just remember being so happy on the road because that and like secondly we had a little more chill time we didn't have to go like we would wake up in the morning and go work out um like we would eat breakfast and then we'd go work out and and then you'd go back to the hotel and you'd have you know four or five hours to kind of just kick it because first pitch was at six or seven and you take batting practice after the home team does so basically you get to the field um you go take batting practice you know you 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 take your balls and in, in, in the outfield when you're not hitting and then you go in and you have about 45 minutes and then you're like, let's go, let's play. So for me, 
I wasn't, I've never been a big fan of all the downtime because I'm a, I'm very analytical and I'm like a deep thinker. So like for me, when I knew that like I could just, I could chill until I had to like lock it in. And like, once I was locked in, I could just stay locked in and play. Like I always played better on the road and um, combination of a lot of things. I think I was more relaxed and there was just maybe a little more adrenaline pumping. So when you're on the road, you know, you talk about like, like something as simple as breakfast, like how does that work? Is that all at the hotel? Is there, is there something you do like at the campus of the, of the home team? Yeah. So, um, typically we would be staying at like a five-star hotel. So like we're living lot, like, like, you know, like sometimes we had our own room inside our hotel room and our, our roommate had another room and like, we both have like King beds and flat screen TV. Like it was nice. So like they always had, you know, great buffet spread for breakfast. And like, you know, in the weeks before a trip, our like director of baseball operations would come up and he'd be like, why don't you order all your meals for the trip to LSU? And that he would already picked out like all the restaurants you were going and like the worst place you would go would be like PF Chang's. So like you would, <laughs> you know, you would check off like, you know, whatever I want the, the shrimp bang bang or whatever that is. And, you know, you do that for every meal of the weekend. So like you'd forget about it, but then you'd show up and you know, like, you'd show up to a restaurant, they'd already have your order and your name. They just bring it out and you just basically eat and talk and leave. Like you never, you never thought about paying a bill or anything. Like you just like show up to a really nice restaurant, boom, crush food. And uh, <laughs> it was just phenomenal. Like it was like, it was like such fake life. Like it, that doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So, and it was in every city, you know, and you'd show up and they'd be like, where, you know, where our best jumpsuit. So you'd be like in your, you know, at the time it was Adidas, but, you know, Nike, Tennessee ball jumpsuit and like you, everybody walk in like, you know, strutting, we just get these, this big table in the middle of the restaurant and just like, just crush. So it was phenomenal. And then you, I forget who it was, one of you guys dropped the, uh, the whole thing of per diem money. So what is, what is that? So per diem money is like, basically there's an allocated amount for players to live on on a day-to-day basis so i think steve like if we went on the road we would get a specific amount depending on how many meals weren't provided but it was very loose like they always overpaid us more than we probably should have gotten well like yeah you know and then it's, when we when school ended too, like that was when you'd really cash it in because they'd be paying you weekly for your rent, your your food, your travel, everything. It was it was awesome. I didn't I tell you what, I didn't make as much money as I was making at Tennessee until like I don't know, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they like it's per meal that you that's not getting covered already. But, you know, and we'll get to it later, I'm sure, with the minors. Like, the minor leagues, it's like, you know, $7 for breakfast, $10 for lunch, $10 for dinner. In in college, it was like $18 for breakfast, $25 (laughs) for lunch, and like 30 bucks for dinner. So, like, every once in a while, you're just like praying that, oh, man, I hope I hope we're not getting dinner tonight as a team because I want that 30 bucks. I'll, <laughs> I'll go drop $8 for like you know, Chipotle yeah. and, and pocket that other 22. 
So for sure. I guess so that, that brings up an interesting thing, <clears throat> you know, not to get too in the weeds on the whole, um, you know, should college players be paid? But, you know, it, it, I guess it, my assumption is that that per diem is a, a fairly common thing for college athletes. Um, I'm sure at the bigger schools, it's more money and the smaller schools, it's probably less money. Um, but, you know, that, that's that's kind of an eye opening thing there. Um, what, what's your guys' stance on that whole, you know, players being paid uh, to, to play college? Personally, you know, I I think the big thing is, yeah, you know, that per diem's nice. And that, you know, what, we went on the road probably five times a year. You know, so that's five weekends where we're getting that. Oh, okay, but, okay. Yeah, so it's not like that's, you know, every week forever. You know, that's and when only, school ended. When school yeah, ended. and when school ended. That was, you know, that was always a perk. But, you know, for, for a lot of those athletes where their name's being used, you know, I, I don't know. For us as baseball players who, you know, we had a couple thousand fans, you know, we were not making money back as a baseball program. I can't imagine we were making as much money as what was being put into us. But for these big football programs where these players, you know, their likeness is being used to make a crap ton of money. I still think there should be some kind of compensation for those guys, especially when they're not allowed to go straight to the pros. If they were allowed and they chose to go to school, now we're getting into a, you know, a little different situation. But I think when you're forcing them to go to school and not being allowed to get paid, I think there's just some, you know, there should be something there for those guys. Yeah, I, I'll start by saying this. I'm not at all against it, but I, I don't think it's at all what the people who are really pushing it think it would be because there are a handful of people whose likeness is actually worth something. Exactly. And, and you know, like it would be a very much like some guys would be making hundreds of thousands and maybe, you know, a handful of women athletes too, making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and then majority of your athletes 95 percent of them will be making nothing so maybe more than that so you know it's interesting it's it's entirely different than uh some of the past like you know in the, in its infancy proposals to where you know athletes would be paid like a salary or something like that but it's just not feasible like like you said steve i mean really it's it's football and basketball that bring in the bring in the money and then you add to that um athletes have large social media following so like companies can maybe be able to advertise through that um and the athlete can make money through that but there's only such a small fraction of those athletes who will even be targeted for that and it, it's not um it just brings up an even bigger concept for me um because it's not a it's not something that's going to promote any sort of equality or anything like that. Like, no. it's, like it's definitely, it's only going to make it, make it. And, and it's fine with me because it's like, it's true. Like these people are, you know, talk about like a, a major football player. It's like, they're in a different stratosphere anyway, even when it comes to the other athletes. They, they, you know, I remember just being at school at the same time as Eric Berry, you know, and I know you remember that too, Steve. It's like, that dude would walk down campus. It's like, we didn't necessarily like we could kind of relate to him, but like 
That dude, dude people, was in Mar- he was on Mars. You know what I mean? We had a basketball player make a rap about Eric Berry. Yeah, and it was yeah, played yeah. daily <laughs> at football games. Yeah. Like the cheerleaders were in that sucker. Like there was a music video. The dude, and the he basically just player. said his name. Yeah, he's a Hall of Fame player. And like honestly, like if somebody told me, Oh, Eric Berry made five hundred thousand this year, I'd be like, Well, he's gonna be making fifteen million a year from now. So like whatever. I'm not exactly be mad about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um it's just an interesting concept i it's such a such a large topic and you know for me like we could have a whole another podcast on this like i wrote my senior thesis on like title nine and like what its intentions were versus like what it actually created um and football needs to be its own entity like what's happening right now is it's making so much money and then people are trying to take you know other sports down so that women's sports eat nothing can equal football right like it just needs to be a, totally its own entity and you know whether that means break off from the ncaa or whatever i don't know but like then it allows equality to be more promoted like through all the other sports straight up you know like as opposed to like you see all these college baseball programs being lost right now just because of of that reason you know they're not able to fund you know, men's sport, so to speak, because, because of it. So, and I don't think that was the intention, if that makes sense. Yeah. So kind of digging out of that, um, well, I guess, let me take a step backwards. Why did you each choose, because you brought up, you know, in, in baseball, I guess you insinuated in baseball, you know, you don't have to go to college versus, you know, basketball, you know, the one and done uh, you know, rule in football, the three-year rule, you know, you guys both chose to obviously pursue the, the college athletic side. Uh, why did you not pick to just go right out of high school? Charlie, we'll start with you. So, so for me, um, and I'm sure Steve is probably the same situation, um, but like we both had some pretty legit traction um, to to take that professional route, I think, in high school. The thing is, unless you're really like a first rounder, maybe a second round guy out of high school, you really have to make a conscious effort to be like, I want to go pro. Because after those first two or three rounds, there's only so much money to give and a signing bonus. And the, the organization then typically, you know, has to offer to pay for your schooling whenever you know, whenever you are done playing or however you choose it. And it's a huge, it's a major risk. Like when you look at the percentages of high school players who don't make it to the major leagues, I mean, it's really high. So like if you're not for sure going to go in the top, you know, three, maybe five rounds and get, you know, a large sum of money, you kind of have to say like, hey, I'm going to go to college because, you know, even if you say you you do want to sign, you might end up you might end up losing leverage, and you know a team's not going to pay you. Would it be worth to go anyway? So I know for me personally, you know I had a lot of in in house meetings and like pre draft workouts and stuff, and um, I had a you know it's it's an agent, but they're technically an advisor when you're an amateur because um, you're not paying them. And, you know, basically our, our choice was like, hey, you know, we're going to put a number out there that's kind of intimidating because like unless unless someone gives you that, 
you don't want to go pro any or you don't want to go pro right now anyway. You might as well go play at a high level for three years, almost be done with your degree, um, and then go pro because you then have a backup plan. You don't have to like go back to four years of school and you're you've already played at a really high level and you can jump over a lot of like more raw high school kids at that time. So for me that was that was the route I took was like as as enamoring as it would have been to just be like, oh I'm going pro out of high school. That that ends badly for a lot of kids, unfortunately. I mean, yeah, I honestly don't have a whole lot else to add to that. That's pretty spot on right there. You know, you you have to weigh those risks and rewards and coming out of high school, there's so many risks. And even then, you know, now there's so many things that I know now that I didn't know then that I'm glad I made that decision. Yeah, even just from a development perspective, in the minors, you're your own coach. You know, you, you get some, some help from coaches, but for the most part, they expect you to be doing what you need to do when you need to do it. You're really, you know, much more self-sufficient. There's so many guys coming out of high school that just don't understand how to do that yet. And yeah, I guarantee I was at that point where I, I would have struggled going into that life right away. Yeah. So there's, there's just so many question marks at that point that going to college, getting that base of education, and then really only having to go back and finish a little bit after is most of the time the right call. For sure. I mean, you have to be like, and, and we can get into this as you talk about pro guys, but like, I know we both played with a few freaks who did come out of high school and those guys are just for what they did. Like I'm thinking about playing against you guys in Fort Myers and you had like Byron Buxton and and all these guys. And, and I was like, man, you know, it's as good as they are. They're even better than they look because they came out at 18 years old and just went into a season. That's 140 games. And plus, you know, instructional league plus spring training and they're able to get right into an off-season routine. They're able to, like, produce in the season. Like, they come off as confident. They're staying healthy. It means they're taking care of their body. Like, you go – like, for me, and I'm sure you too, Steve, like, I don't know how many high school games we had in a regular season, like 20-some. I was going to say, yeah, less than 30, especially coming from the north. You know, like, you talk about yeah. Buxton. You know, he probably had 40 or 50 games at least coming from Georgia. True, true. Yeah, but like being in the north when our season's starting in April and ending in May. Yeah. You're yeah, only exactly. getting so many games in, in that period. So I'm supposed to go from a guy who hit, you know, whatever, 400 plus in 22 games, like big whoop, and then translate that into 135 games against like the best guys in the country who are older than me and just left, you know, powerful college program. Like that's just. And like, and honestly, like with all due respect, I was a showcase player. Like I just knew how to show up. Like I produced in high school, but like I was in a small town and I just knew how to show up, you know, hit the ball out of the park in batting practice, run a fast 60 time, you know, hit a high number on the radar gun from the outfield. And like, then everyone was like, oh, like come play for us. You know, it's not like I was like actually a baseball player yet. And in fact, like, you know, I was still raw even coming out of college. So, like, I completely agree. Like, it's it, – the system of it is is tough because when you look at it from the actual – the MLB organization's perspective, it's like if we can sign 20 of these high school kids for 100000 each and one of them pans out, 
that's worth it to us. And like when you look back at it like that, it's like, man, that doesn't mean just because they want me that I'm set up for success. It just means these guys are strictly analytically playing the numbers game to be like, if we can get 20 of these kids that we narrow down, one of them's going to pan out and that will be enough return on our investment. So transitioning then to, you know, we talked about kind of day in the life of, of being a, a ball player at Tennessee. How does that translate now? You know, you draft day comes, you, you get that call. Uh, and now you're, you're off to, to play minor league ball, which is, you know, kind of that, that next step on your, on your dream path. Uh, and what, what is that like, Charlie? It, it's it was amazing um it was it was extremely emotional for me um because i was i had gone through a lot just I, I had three injuries my junior year including a broken wrist so it just it was kind of a wash and to watch the draft go by almost all of it before i got picked like i was like literally in my room i like what well, couldn't even watch it anymore and my dad called up and he was like hey like I think you're about to go. I don't even remember how, like if we got a call or whatever, but I like re- reluctantly went downstairs to like watch my name, hopefully come up on the ticker. And then I was like, I had convinced myself at that point, like, you know, whatever, like it wasn't going to happen or something. I'm going to have to go back to be a senior. And like it went, it came up on the ticker. And like, at that point, like, I was still like kind of, pissed off and had a major chip on my shoulder but like it kind of all went away too because like I was a Mets fan as a kid I got drafted by the Mets and all of a sudden like I was like screw where I got drafted like this is incredible like here I am like everything changed and you know I for me personally like I got to show up to Brooklyn New York which is like one of the better places to play in the minor leagues and they they do get a lot of fans and like you kind of feel like a mini celebrity there and fortunate to have like a really cool uh, first season um, of professional baseball. And then from that point, like, it was a great intro to to pro ball. But I won't – I will say, like, the first spring training is when you really start to learn to be a professional. Like, until then, you're kind of just, like, trying to, like, grab on to um, some people who get it and just follow their lead. And fortunately, like, Steve and I both, like, we, we would go back to Tennessee together and – there were players who had been through it the year before us, two years before us, three years before us who went back and trained. And so when we, when we had them to call upon as resources in the off season to be like, this is the way, this is how you train as a professional. Like when you don't have class and when you, you know, when you are your own coach, like that was a major lifesaver. Let, let me tell you a little bit about my first experience with pro <laughs> ball here. So I'll, I'll just say, yeah, it's, it's a roller coaster for sure. Because you get drafted and, you know, it's literally like one of the highlights of your life. You know, up to that point, you know, that's what we had been working towards forever. So then you go from your college career and like Charlie talked about, you know, like our stadium was one of the worst in the SEC. Like the SEC is stacked. Those locker rooms are gorgeous. And our locker room, again, you know, it's a professional locker room. You've got solid wood. Your lockers are pristine. We had a weight room put in our fresh, like towards the end of our freshman year, sophomore year, we had a brand new weight room under the stadium. Our indoor facility was gorgeous. We're getting, you know, great food every day, two, three meals a day. Yeah, like just 
every amenity you can think of. So then I roll into, I guess the first, you know, I went down to Florida for extended spring training camp for like three days before I went to Elizabeth in Tennessee, where I started off. Yeah. And that was fine. We jump on a bus to go to Elizabeth and then of course the air goes out and then the bus breaks down. So <laughs> great start there in a 12 hour bus ride back to Tennessee where I was at like a couple weeks before. Yeah. Like I can just take my car. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I show up in Elizabeth in Tennessee, home of Jason Witten. Yeah. That's basically, and they still, they'll let you know it. They still have Jason Witten jerseys in every store. But a tiny town, and we get there, and they're like, okay, you have two days in a hotel, and you have to go find your own living situation. And you're like, what? You, you don't provide a living situation? Like, no, you have to go find your own. Like, none of it, we, you know we took a bus here, right? Like, none of us have transportation. Like, how are we supposed to, like, what are we supposed to do? You know, again, we're coming from college, where they're literally doing all of this for us. And all of a sudden, they're just like, yeah, go figure it out. So me and a couple guys end up getting this house that, you know, it should have been a sign that we rented this house for like 500 a month. It was, a window fell out front, like from the, I don't even know what it was called. Like I had this little back room that wasn't a real bedroom, but this was my first air mattress experience. Yeah, again, you go from five-star hotels, and now I'm sleeping on an air mattress in a house with no air conditioning in just like the most ratchet place you can think of, having to walk a mile and a half to the stadium every day because, again, none of us have a car. You get to the stadium, and you have maybe 200 fans, again, coming from playing at LSU in South Carolina where you're getting 10,000. Now you might have 200 in the stadium any one night. And it's just, you, know, you go from this unbelievable feeling of being drafted and like experiencing your dreams. And then all of a sudden that's what you're thrown into. And it's definitely, yeah, it's a shock to the system. You got to get used to not having that surrounding, not having that emotion in the game like you did before. Yeah, and everybody's a little bit more for themselves, you know, because at that point it's really about trying to get up to the next level. Yeah, that that care about winning isn't there as much as it is you doing well in the game. So it's it's honestly a whole different game, and it's just like you say, going from a college situation where you have the best of everything to going to that was interesting and it definitely took a little bit to get used to that's crazy see i we got really fortunate my first year and it like numbed me out like we we were put up for free in <sighs> dorms at um liu brooklyn and it was pretty nice like it wasn't anything crazy like the bed was you know it was like a twin bed but like you know it was free it wasn't bad and like we were living in a cool part of brooklyn like i took the subway to the field every day but like i got that wake up call the following year for sure and and i completely agree with that it's 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 a shock to the system for sure because um you're so spoiled and like you know, so spoiled everyone's like you're you're hungry but everyone else is too and like they have a leg up because they know what it's they know what it's like and you have to like kind of recalibrate and get on that 
same system but like at least like steve and i like we had each other and we had all the guys like we entered pro ball with that year and who had gone in the year before us the two years before us to like call on and like help us and that was a major resource from like being at tennessee just that like so many of us the majority of us were like kind of on that same path you know for the most part so that was cool especially being that like it was so individualistic like within your organization like and we ended up we all ended up making great friends within our organizations but like you know for a while i feel like we really leaned on each other you're like are you going through this you know like <laughs> they're like yep same thing over here you know wait to hear this so that was pretty neat so there was you know it sounds like there was a little bit of a you know more maybe more so for steve that kind of shock of welcome to the non-college baseball life what did what did game day look like then you know for home and away games in the minors especially you know compared to what you guys were doing at tennessee eerily um quiet i don't know if that makes sense like everything's so routine you're kind of expected to know expected to know what's going on um schedule wise like it's not spoon fed to you in college like you're handheld like that like if you fail at least at our school like you had to literally try to like everything was spoon fed the time of this meeting the time of you know bp this that and the other thing whereas in pro ball like nobody cares if you don't hit in the cage like if you want to hit in the cage like you got to allocate time for that if you want to go work out that day like you have to allocate time for that. Like you have to build and know like what you thrive off and how you work. And then you have to go from there. So typically, um, you know, I think we'd, we'd work out, um, at a minimum, I think you had to work out three days a week and you would have to like sign in at, if we were home, it would be at like our local gym, which usually was a piece of crap gym compared to like, you know, our, our Taj Mahal at Tennessee, like it'd be like the local YMCA or something. And the team strength coach would be there and you'd sign in. Or if you were on the road, you would go to the the road teams, you know, YMCA for lack of a better term and, and sign in. And you would just make sure you got a minimum of three workouts a, a week. But for us, um, you know, it's basically at our discretion. And thankfully, you know, Steve and I both had a workout plan from, from Herman, who was our, our, our trainer and um you know just through college and then in the off season the pro ball and so we had a major leg up with that just he played himself and he's a brilliant guy so we had those workouts and then besides that i mean it was on you to get breakfast um usually i would find the breakfast spot with my roommate or a couple of their guys and you know we go get eggs or pancakes or whatever and just talk about our swing or how we were feeling or something new we're going to try. I mean, that's the best part is just like, and I know we're going to get into like just talking strategy and talking baseball here in a little bit, but like that's the part you miss is like just, just uh, that constant pursuit of like kind of protect perfecting your swing or perfecting I'm sure for Steve, a pitch or a sequence or, you know, some sort of mechanics. And those are the things you talk about over breakfast. And then um, as the day goes on, um, you, you usually just kick it. Um, if you're home, you usually get to the field for a seven o'clock game around like noon or one and, um, kind of do your routine. You know, if you need to get with the athletic trainer, you need to foam roll. If you need to run some poles, like that's the time to do that or go to the batting cage and get your routine and usually do it early afternoon. Um, and then there will be, 
um, a batting practice and an infield outfield session, similar to college ball. Um, if you're home, it'll be earlier. And if you're on the road, it'll be closer to game time. So, um, you know, if you're home, you're, you're actually at the field virtually all day. If you're on the road, it's kind of nice because you get a little more time to chill in the hotel, show up to the field, basically hit, throw, and, and play a game. Um, so that's kind of what the routine looks like um, generally. But for me, it was, it was always so important to, to do the same things I mentioned on the college side, which get my reads through the week, um, you know, position myself in each of the three outfield spots and kind of work shallow, work deep, work in between, and, and make sure I was practicing my different routes to the ball, my footwork, you know, how I was coming through to throw and, and uh, infield, outfield, make sure I'm having strong, accurate throws. And also just my cage work was so big. Um, you know, I wanted to go into BP almost ready for the game. So always going into the cage with two or three results and re staying relaxed and, um, you know, increasing my mental intensity as we approach first pitch. Steve, how about you playing uh, in those cornfields? <laughs> uh honestly you know the schedule itself pretty similar you know most guys again it was kind of you know you're on your own you know there's very minimal structure it was yeah you know, as a pitcher a lot of it you know i think for the most part throughout my whole career we were on the field at three o'clock so that meant that you know you'd see some guys rolling in at 2 30 dressing and like running out to the field Whereas I would say a bulk of us would be there at that like 12 o'clock time. You know, a lot of guys like to show up, bring lunch, maybe eat lunch, you know, in the locker room before going and doing stuff. But you'd have your, as a pitcher, you know, we had a pretty extensive shoulder routine. And again, it wasn't, you know, no one's sitting there holding your hand while you're doing it. But it was something that personally you know, I did every day, like a little mobility and shoulder strength routine. Uh and again, it really depended on everybody had a different schedule every day based off of if they were one of your five starters and what day they were on in the rotation. And then if you were a bullpen guy and then even from a bullpen standpoint, if you had pitched the day before, how many innings you pitched the day before, if you've been on a day or two of rest and you're more likely to pitch today, yeah, you really tailored your routine. Yeah, at least for me, yeah, I can't speak to everyone, but I had a routine. But that routine was flexible enough to incorporate whatever whatever situation I was in that day. So if I had pitched the day before, you know, my routine was very workout heavy. I was going pretty pretty heavy pregame because I knew I probably wasn't pitching that day. Do my heavy running, lifting, all of that. If I've had a day or two as a bullpen guy, I'm still doing all of my stuff but it's probably going to be in a lighter standpoint. And then I'm going to do a little bit more of my mental work that day and looking at stats and kind of looking at player, uh, player profiles, who I'm playing that day, what the lineup looks like and kind of wrapping my head around what I might, you know, what pitch sequences I might do with each of these guys, you know, depending on if they're heavy strikeout guys, if they're, you know, first pitch hitters, um, if they like to see a lot of pitches, you know, all of those things, you start to get an idea of who you're facing. So you have that when you're up on the mound, you can make that split second decision of what you're going to do. So again, it kind of depended on what day it was, but those are kind of the big things that I would look at. 
So, you know, talking about that, and I know you talked about in college, you know, you wanted to see the last, the last tens, um, you know, that, that kind of baseball strategy, you know, and when Tony and, and Charlie were talking about the draft, uh, talked a little bit about, about the Astros and that, you know, depending on where they are in the count, you know, you normally would expect these pitches, but if you know what's coming, it's, it's very different, um, which kind of, kind of brought about the idea to do this podcast with you guys and really talk about some of that strategy that I think the, the normal casual fan really doesn't know. They talk about, you know, X's and O's in football all the time, but in baseball, we really don't think strategy as much. Um, So Steve, start with you, you know, what does that strategy really look like? And, and how do you how do you prep for those games? And what do you, you know, as, as you're getting some of this information, how do you use that to adjust what your what your plan's going to be? So, I mean, it's honestly, it's a big game of cat and mouse. You know, you're really, as a pitcher, you're trying to figure out what the hitter's looking at. You know, because as a pitcher, I'm the one that initiates everything. You know, I get to make my decision first as, you know, what pitch am I throwing? And then the hitter really has to react off of that. But as you get you know, more into it, I'm starting to try to figure out what he thinks I'm going to throw and maybe trying to work off of that a little bit. But to go to the stats, you know, some of the big things I would always look at is you know, strikeouts in the last 10 games. You know, if a guy's striking out a lot, one, it means he's probably less confident. He's swinging at a lot of pitches, not in the zone. Uh, so it really means, you know, those are the guys that I'm going to expand that zone. I'm going to start with fastballs, you know, a couple inches off rather than trying to go right down the middle. I'm more likely going to mix in some breaking balls on them compared to that guy that, you know, might not have a great batting average, but he's not striking out. That means that he's, yeah, he's not swinging at those bad pitches. He's putting the ball in play a lot. So he's the type of guy that I might attack head on a little bit more you know, drive right to the middle of the strike zone because he's obviously not crushing the ball. You know, and then you have to look at, you know, where guys are in the lineup, um, you know, a more general player profile, what guys are their big hitters who's really hot right now that maybe you want to stay away from a little bit. And then, you know, to go a little bit deeper, you start looking at pitches. Yeah, because a lot of times we'll have some kind of scouting profile on when when they hit. You know, like if they are those deep count hitters, what kind of pitches they're hitting. Um, and then, yeah, another aspect it is just uh, you know, looking internally a little bit. You know, as Charlie will probably talk about. You know, a lot of times they have a lot of data on individual pitchers what this guy's likely to throw and what counts. You know, there's a lot of charting on, yeah, he's, when he gets behind in the count, he's going to go to his fastball. Um, 2 he throws curveball 70% of the time. Yeah, so kind of being able to figure out yourself a little bit, find those patterns that you might be displaying and using that to your advantage every once in a while. Yeah, if my change-ups on one day and i know that i don't really throw you know 2-0 change-ups much but i'm feeling it i might drop some you know a couple more 2-0 change-ups than i normally would because i know that he's not ready for it he's sitting there thinking fastball all the way but something like that can only happen if you if you're feeling that pitch if you're really able to locate because if not you know the whole reason 
that scouting report is out there is because you probably can't do it. So I guess I, my assumption was always that the pitches were being called by, by a coach who would relay that to the catcher who would relay that to the pitcher. But it's sounding like the pitcher has a lot more say in what, what the pitch sequence is going to be. Yeah. You know, in the, you know, once you get to the minors and the pros, the, the coach really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's you and the catcher. And a lot of times, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to my catcher. The catcher looks at the scouting report just as much. And he's the one that's back there. He sees everything that's going on. And your catchers are really smart guys. They really understand the game. And a lot of times they can get in that hitter's perspective a little bit easier. But at that level, you know, you and the catcher are really having a connection. And, you know, the pitcher can shake off as much as he wants. You know, I'll shake off a lot to get to the pitches that I feel good with. But then a lot of times, you know, as you build a relationship with a the catcher, they know you just as well. And, you know, I've had some catchers that I never shake off because if I'm thinking of a pitch, he's calling it. You know, you don't even have to worry about shaking off. And then I've had some times where I'll shake off. He slams down the same pitch again. And if you have that connection with your catcher, then it's like, okay, he sees something. He sees something that I don't. He knows that this is the pitch to go to. And literally almost every time it is. That's really cool. I did not know that. Huh. Yeah, so it's a pretty cool – like I've like, – when you have a good relationship with your catcher, and that's something that – you know, you'll see in the majors, like, you know, when, when that one pitcher has that catcher, you, know, you might have your normal starting catcher, but then you have your ace. And for whatever reason, you know, they have a different catcher that comes in and catches for him every week. It's because they have that connection. You know, it's worth putting that lesser bat in the lineup because of this connection that they have together and that game that they get to play. How common is that to have, to have a catcher that is specific to a pitcher. I know um, I, I'm failing to remember what the situation was, but um, was it with the Cubs? I think when the Indians were playing the Cubs in the World Series is kind of when I first saw it, uh, where when a pitcher came out, the the catcher changed. Yeah, it it's, was a big deal. It's not really common. You don't see it a lot. I think more, especially in the minors, you know, like we had two or three catchers, and, you know, you had two that would – typically switch out almost every other day or every couple of days, but I pretty much threw to the same guy every day. It was almost like they were, it was meshed in with the pitching rotation to where I was pitching to the same guy every day. And me and him had a, you know, a really good relationship and he knew what kind of pitches I threw. And it, you know, it really makes a difference when they just, you know, they know how your pitches move. You know, honestly, even better than you do half the time because they're the one that has to catch it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah so, yeah. so they know exactly how your ball moves, what it looks like from that perspective. Yeah. And so they really have an understanding of what can happen to those hitters. And they have the best perspective of that swing. You know, so they'll see if that guy's pulling his shoulder out and you know, that breaking ball is just dropping under his bat every single time they're going to have the better view of that than I will. And so, Charlie, you know, with a, a ball player who actually has to put in real work and not just play <laughs> Xbox until it's time to show up for the, the game, you know, what does uh, what is your prep look like as far as that the analytics? You, know, you talked about watching video. 
um, you know, what, what, what would you do to, to prep for those games? Yeah, it kind of never ends. Like I'd be up at all hours of the night, like with the, with the aforementioned monster, just thinking about it. But, um, (laughs) I would always the night before, like once I processed the previous game, I would, I would try to look up the starter for the next night's game and, um, try to see if there's some video on them because hitting is so visual um and basically it's a it's a rehearsed and prepared reaction and so um for me like i want to get an idea of like where what his arm angle is and like where how i want to prepare in the cage you know the following day like i mentioned that i would go into the cage each day with with a plan of like two to three things i wanted to feel well, you know, if a guy's over the top arm motion um, and maybe some downward tilt on his ball, then I want to work on matching the plane of my bat to that in the cage and just feeling, feeling myself, you know, hitting a uh, straight over the top, pretty straight ball with some downward tilt. Whereas if the guy's a little bit, um, you know, three quarters or a little more sidearm and the ball's coming from a lower, lower place and, you know, I know it's going to tail and run away from me you know, I'm going to work on, you know, hitting the ball a little, my point of contact is going to go back a little bit in the cage and I'm going to work on feeling that deeper point of contact so that, you know, I can, I can just have that connectivity with a ball that's going to sink and run away from me and I can drive it, you know, into the opposite field. Um, So it kind of starts with that, but there are so many numbers. I, the only thing I really wanted to use was I would look at, um, two things the percentage of if they had it the percentage of like how many how what pitches the guy threw like there are guys who would throw you know 62 percent fastball you know which which means you know you're throwing a lot of fastballs at the professional level and then there's guys who threw you know 40 percent fastball and those guys were always tough because you you almost wonder like hey you know do I even look fastball tonight? Like what, what's, what's the go-to pitch? And, and often that pitch is either a slider or a changeup. So that goes in your cage preparation, preparation routine also, because a lot of times those guys, you know, aren't confident either. They're not confident in their fastball. It's just not their put away pitch and they're not going to really put that pitch over the plate. So all these different, all these different methods of preparation really go into once I, ideally, once I dig in the batter's box, I'm not really thinking I'm already in, I'm already in sync with what, um, what the pitcher's arm angle is, what the, what the spin of the ball looks like, um, and what my point of contact should be, what pitch I'm looking for. Um, so the other thing I looked for analytically was, is this guy getting more fly balls or ground ball outs? And that would tell me a lot about, you know, does the guy throw a cutter or a sinker or is, you know, is he up in the zone a little more? Um, and if he's more of a fly ball guy, you know, I'm going to work on hitting the ball on low line drives in, in batting practice um, because I don't want to fly out. I want to I take advantage of that and really get it. And vice versa, if the guy's more of a ground ball guy, you know, I'm going to work on getting the ball up in the air in batting practice um, because, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to do what he's trying to get me to do. Um, so like, like Steve said, it is a cat and a mouse game. And it's interesting in college, it was always a battle for me. The battle felt like it was between me and the opposing coach, you know, because they're calling the pitches and um, you know, it's really at their disposal. But when you got the pro ball, 
like you develop these rivalries with the catcher because like those those bastards like know everything about you like, <laughs> they, they watch you in bp every day while the pitchers are playing xbox and they watch their catchers. <laughs> the catchers are out there sweating their ass off watching the other team hit and taking notes off off them and like you know i pissed me off man i used to hate all the catchers because like they knew everything about you and and yeah, seriously, you play them. You play them three, four games in a row every time, and you play them throughout the year. And it's like, gosh, damn it! Like, you know, the pitches they would call, like, give me something to hit. You know everything about me, you know. So that was always that was always uh, an interesting battle, so to speak. But for me, um, you know, digging in the box on a daily basis, like I'm a fastball hitter, so I wanted to find a way for someone to give me. You know, I wanted to get I wanted to narrow the game and simplify the game enough to where it was like, okay, like this is you versus me. Like, give me your best. It's going to be my best. Like, you're not going to get this past me. Like, let's go. So to get to that point, like. It depended on what type of pitcher I was facing. Um, And sometimes I had to concede and say, listen, this guy's just going to rely on a slider. And, um, you know, I need to see the ball up more and I need to see, you know, the ball, I need to get deeper into the count or whatever the case may be. Um, but it really varied on, on the picture of that, that day. All right. So both you guys, um, you know, baseball is filled with kind of these, these cool stories, you know, anytime there's, especially in college ball, it seems like anytime there's a rain delay, like the guys are just trying to keep themselves busy and do, you know, kind of fun, stupid stuff. Um, what is like the one story that you always always tell people when you start thinking about your baseball days? Any of the stories I do have aren't, you know, stories to ready? Tell. Yes. All right. All right. Well, let's skip it then. Agreed. Yeah. Let's let's skip that. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, yeah, in college, like we got, we weren't allowed to have fun stories. Let's, I, forget, like, well, I forget what college it was, but they were doing, like, jousting during the rain delay. Oh, yeah. Like, guys, like, yeah, they did, like, dance-offs and, like... Well, like, I get that, um, but, like, they're, like, doing, like, we're, like, guys on top of each other's shoulders doing jousting. Yeah. And I'm like, one of these dudes is going to get hurt. Like, that's, that's a not a good decision. i tell you what. In college, like, rain delays suck, but in pro ball, you're, like, when you see... The first thing I would check every morning, like... <laughs> would be the radar and like if it was gonna rain that day i would be psyched because like you get one off day a month you know yeah like, i'd be like man the days the worst is up. when they you still have to go through bp show up at the field and sit until nine o'clock before they call the game yeah if, if it was gonna rain you wanted it to rain at two o'clock poor have the game canceled and then you get your day off that, that Otherwise, was the Florida State League, though. I mean, yeah, that was, that was every day at two. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what, though. After about a hundred games, if you can get a day without BP, you took it. So, oh, like yeah. that For two sure. o'clock rain, where they were like, they would call and be like, "Hey, you know, come to the field two hours later. We're not taking BP." You're just like, yes, yeah. like because you know the rain's gonna stop at three thirty, and like the game's still gonna play. Oh, we never took BP in the Florida State League, ever. Oh, my God. It was the worst. Maybe for the first month. August yeah. August baseball in Florida is miserable. Oh. Yeah, because oh, it to, does. It, it rains from 2 to 4. Like, yep, every day. It's 98 and high, yep. and then it rains and then from 2 humid. to 4. And then the humidity after that is like, 
out of this world. And the bugs down there. I remember, like, you know, we would be doing our running, and you're just running through these swarms of flies, like sweat flies everywhere. Yeah. Like, you just see it like a cloud of sweat flies as you're running through. It is, oh, that was, there's, there were some good parts of Florida, but that was not one of them. <laughs> so, you know, for each of you guys, you know, at some point, at some point it came to an end and, you know, you, you never really got to that, that final step of, of getting to the big leagues. Um, and so, you know, Steve, I know your story a little bit, but you, you know, how did, how did that come to be where it was like, you know what, I've been working, you know, for as long as I can remember on this, but it's time to, time to hang it up. Uh, Charlie, we'll start with you on this one. Man, I like, and Steve can probably laugh and attest to this like your boys hung on for a long period of time <laughs> so, you know one of my favorite stories i guess because i never really answered the question my favorite part of my baseball story is like okay so i got released from the mets after um i guess it would have been after 2014 and 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 that's like a death sentence like to get released like it's virtually almost impossible to get picked back up, especially out of minor leagues. And, um, you know, kind of busted it that whole year um, to like train and get picked back up and like go to all these workouts. And I, and I went door to door to every single team in Florida. Um, Nobody would work me out and then came out here to Arizona and did the same thing. And the last team I went to was the Rockies. Um, And I had some help from, from one of our good buddies, Zach um, and, you know, a scout there. But I got to work out with the Rockies and like just blew it out of the water and crushed it. And they signed me on the spot. And then I was in double A that year. And they were like, I just was, it was going really well, man. And so that was, that was a pretty cool like redemption story to like punch baseball back in the mouth, so to speak. Um, but got released, you know, at the end of that year, um, they just, they've had a loaded organization. And, you know, I was 25 at the time, which is, apparently old for double a and um you know tried to go play independent ball for two years and independent ball man that's that's enough for a whole nother podcast like it's a whole different setup like there's no front office management it's just the manager and the team and like if you lose a couple couple games like the manager will literally like release the whole team and like sign a whole new team like because there's so many people like looking to play it's crazy so if wow. my first year end independent ball i played on four different teams and then was like i can't end it that way so i came back the next year um had a much better connection had a pretty darn good year ended up getting hurt again so i didn't have a full season of stats but um so 2017 after that year um you know i i tried again like i was like man I would love to play. Like I still have enough in the tank. And for me, basically it was, I did everything I could do to keep a uniform on my back. And like, it's the first time where like, I literally can't keep a uniform on my back. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's just no opportunity. And so for me, that was like, I don't want to say it was bittersweet. Like it sucked, but like at the same time, it was like, at least I, you know, like did everything in my own power to keep that uniform on my back. Cause I don't think I could have lived, without doing that so that's kind of how it ended for me um and I liked it that way you know it I it kind of 
in some respect ended on my own terms. Even though if I had it my way, I'd still be healthy and, and playing in the show. So, Steve, how about uh, how about you? All right. So I mean, I think most people know that I had my injury tore. Yeah. You know, when I do something, I like to go big. So I didn't just <laughs> tear a rotator cuff. Yeah, I didn't tear one muscle. I tore two muscles, um, one of the main ligaments, my labrum, and the part of the capsule along with it. So I just the one thing I remember going in after I got the MRI to get it get it read, and the doctor reading it came in was looking at it, and he was just like, "Holy cow!" And then went and got like a resident or an intern or something. He was like, hey, you got to come see this. Yeah, you never want to hear that in medicine. No, I'm I'm sitting there. I'm like, (laughs) you know, I'm right here, right? Like, what's going on? So, you know, I rehabbed for a year with the twins. And my, you know, coming back was rough. That was probably the toughest year of my life right there. Like, just between the pain, like, you know, for three months, I didn't sleep laying down like i had to sleep in the corner like i had to push a bed up in the corner of a wall so i could sleep like sitting up for honestly yeah like probably about three months before i could really lay down normally uh i just my fastball never came back after about a year i was still around 80 and just it it wasn't going great and that's when i got released and came back to ohio and just kept training you know, kind of got with a local guy and just kind of kept working. And you know, I finally just kind of reworked everything. I tried to rework my whole motion, you know, and ended up getting back to a point where I was throwing hard. Like I was sitting uh, at 92 off of a mound throwing a bullpen, which like, you know, in a bullpen, you typically sit like three or four miles an hour slower than what you like are throwing in a game. So to even... You know, I'm sure I was throwing it a little bit differently, but in order to get to 92 doing that, like I was, my arm was there, but for about a week, anytime I did that, I couldn't lift my arm for a couple of days after. I just, I got to the point where, you know, anytime I really tried to pitch, I couldn't lift my arm for a couple of days. Like the pain was just so intense that uh, I had signed on with a team in Vancouver to go play Winnipeg yeah no Winnipeg it was one of those Canadian cities what an idiot (laughs) but you know I I had signed on and yeah I just got to a point like it was a couple weeks before the season and I still couldn't throw three innings without having to take a full week off and that's when I was like yeah I I've been doing this for 16 months yeah it was time to honestly it was time that I had to start thinking about school if I wanted to get back so that was about the time when I had to call it. And yeah, that was literally yeah, one of the toughest decisions I've ever had in my, to make in my life right there was to officially like officially say that I'm done. And that took a few days. And honestly, like I struggled for probably that next couple of weeks after doing that to like even look at a baseball or think about it. I just kind of had to purge I myself. Haven't. I know it's tough. Like you, I still haven't done it. It's so tough. Like, you know, going back to Tennessee and coaching really helped. Getting back there and being able to be a part of that team still in a different way really kind of helped me get through some of those mental struggles with it. 
Yeah, I just want to interject too, because like I know you wouldn't say this about yourself, but like, like I played right field behind you for three years, and then um, I was basically your colleague for you know what the next four or five years, you know, because we trained together, and then we even played against each other, and like, you know, I got <laughs> what, to witness. What do we have one? Um, we'll get into that in a second. Okay. I want to tell that All right. Um, <laughs> that's a great story, actually, but. Um, Dude, like for people listening, like there was nobody in the SEC better than Steve. Like he was a Friday night starter, and like basically the other team would be lucky if they got a run on Friday night, and they knew it. Like we would always win on Friday night with Steve on the bump, and like I didn't have crap come to me in right field. Like I was just chilling out there for seven innings every time. <laughs> and um, the year you got hurt, you know, I know you did a lot of things in between that, but the year you got hurt, man, you had like a one point something era and you were pitching in the the championship game and you were certainly like that i'm just trying to give a give a perspective like it wasn't like you were just another dude who played pro ball like you were a dude and you were definitely like on the track to the show and like you worked your ass off and like you were in the championship game busting your ass like leaving it all on the line so like you know it, it's a lot to say like, Hey, I'm done. Like, especially, you know, when something out of your control happens like that. But like for me and the people who like worked with you and like, I'm sure so many people who played against you, um, you know, you're a big league talent, big league, big league player. I appreciate that, man. I'll, you know, obviously I could say the same about you, you know, everything we went through, uh, you're literally, you know, at, obviously everybody can see like after this, you know, the amount of time that pitchers sit around and hang out <laughs> and the amount of work that you were putting in while we were sitting around <laughs> and playing Euchre, you know, obviously, you know, the amount of work you put in is just incredible. I appreciate it. It's, it's cool that we'll always have that respect because we did. We went through it together in college. We went through the recruiting thing together and we uh, went through it together in pro ball. And, you know, that's that's pretty, pretty special bond. So so all that to suffice to the big finale of like yeah. when we finally faced each other in pro ball. We had one one time we faced each other, one at bat. I'll let Charlie tell it. <laughs> okay so we're in fort myers and uh i knew it was coming because i think you were in like a flex role that year where you were like starting and then you'd situate situationally relieve or something yeah but, i was um, just doing a little bit of everything you were doing everything yeah and um and that's a great role to be in i always say that about i'll segue for a second i always say that about hitters and pitchers like if you're not like the million dollar baby if you can be kind of that guy who does everything, that gives you an in, right? Like, you don't want to be a guy who wasn't, like, a top three pick who's, you know, trying to be the everyday shortstop or, you know, number three in the starting rotation. Like, you got to brand yourself as that versatile guy who can do both. I can start, I can relieve. Or, you know, as a, as a position player, I can play infield and outfield. Or, you know, I can switch hit or I can start or I can pinch hit. Um so that's a big it factor that I took from playing with with guys who made it who weren't supposed to make it. That's what they had was that that versatility factor. Um, Steve definitely had that. But anyway, so I I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to react, but like I, Steve literally came in to face me for like a lefty lefty. <laughs> match. And I saw him warming up in the pen and I'm like, man, this is really going to happen. And like we had faced each other a ton, like 
and in her squad and stuff but like it had been years now and and i'm like oh my gosh this is just gonna be weird you know like because we train together we live together in the off season and everything and um you know i met my wife with steve in the car um which is a whole nother story which is awesome story but you know we knew each other pretty darn well suffice it to say and uh i just was like dying laughing like i'm like I, I think we both started like laughing like when i got yeah. on the mound and like he stepped in the box like we both looked at like made eye contact for a second and yeah. just started laughing i'm like i can't focus right now i can't focus so i i can't remember how many pitches it was but i remember you were throwing like throwing like that cutter thing oh i was, like, I, I was only giving you cutters that was my goal <laughs> didn't we didn't I we wasn't, i wasn't giving bit? you a fastball <laughs> didn't we battle for a little bit and oh then, yeah like, it was like a decently long at bat and and so like i'm like this will not end and he threw a cutter and i had like the ultimate swinging bunt okay like Literally, like, I don't know how you could hit a ball any softer than this. <laughs> it was the softest hit ball. Like, I couldn't toss a ball to myself and hit it softer. But, like, it literally, it didn't even hit grass. It rolled on the dirt and stopped, like, five feet away. And I beat it out. And, like, so in the box score, it was, like, a, a line drive up the middle single or whatever. And, like... We're just, I'm just like laughing my ass off down the it first It stopped baseline. on the chalk. Like it went it down the first the baseline yeah. and stopped on the chalk. Like I'm pretty sure I got there and I started walking with it because there was nothing I could do. Like he was going to beat out the play. Yeah. <laughs> I just get there and I'm walking. Like I'm just waiting for the ball to go foul so I can pick it up. And yeah. it stays on the line just perfectly until it just <laughs> stops. <laughs> it was perfect though. It was perfect though because like honestly like – Let's be honest. Like, if you struck me out, I would have been pissed. If I hit a jack, you would have been pissed. So, like, that was, like, a decent, like uh, – It's a good you know, compliment. Sure exactly. Like, I'm sure you would have been – like, I, I wasn't threatening anyone on first base. Like, you know, like, I'm just sitting there. So, like, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure you would have rather thrown me out or whatever. But it was, it was hilarious, man. It was, like – it was so funny. And everybody on my team, like, knew that we played together and knew each other. And they're all dying laughing. And it was just something. Like, it was it was such a funny moment to have amongst, like, all the seriousness in a pro ball season. So, anyway. Yeah, he's one thousand off you. Yep, career. <laughs> that is awesome. So, I'm pretty sure you, you got the best of me a number of times in inner squads that I <laughs> talk about, so. Yeah, we'll glaze, we'll glaze over that. We want that, we want that swinging butt. Well, the, key, the key to that is I can't remember it, which means I certainly took it out of my memory. Because I can remember, <laughs> I can remember the good stuff. So, like, I probably, I don't know, who knows how many times it struck me out, but it was probably a lot. So, there's that for the people. I can't think of a better way to end this podcast than than with Charlie's little blooper down the first baseline. So uh, I think we'll end it here. Uh, guys, I really appreciate it. Charlie, congratulations on the birth of your daughter, Charlotte. Uh, Steve, good job doing uh, – I don't know what you do. Uh, but I really appreciate both of you guys coming on the podcast. Thanks, Derek. Great to yeah, be here. Yeah, thank you, Derek. It was, it was great. This was really fun. Thank you for listening to another installment of the Frosty Podcast. Again, special thank you to Charlie Thurber and Steve Groover for sharing their baseball life. 
Uh, we'll keep this uh, Frosty Live tour going for a few more weeks, and then we'll be opening up season two. As long as the NFL's playing, we're going to be podcasting. We'll catch you next time. Oh, sorry. I hope sorry. you weren't trying to talk there, but there I was, was a lot of background. Yeah, Melissa was getting Yeti excited about eating. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. If you keep picking against Steve, Melissa, we'll keep having you on. Derek said it's all right. He'll have you on so you can pick against me again. <laughs> Just wait till I'm playing against whoever has Camara. Yeah. Or honestly, well, yeah. I imagine it's going to be Tony for the next like six years. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jennings probably isn't going to have a big factor this year, not going to lie. I disagree. <laughs> I'm going to trust Charlie on this one. He knows way more than you do. <laughs> he, he's also very optimistic when it comes to our Tennessee guests. I'm, I bet Juwan Jennings has 350 receiving yards and four to five touchdowns, which is I'm, great. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to take him in a redraft league, but it's, no, no, no. but I'll, I mean, that's great for him. That would at least, you know, get him a roster spot. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm shying away from that offense, man. There's too many, there's too many. I feel like every week it's going to be a different guy. So many one. mouths to feed. The only one is Kittle. You know that he's probably going to eat every week. And then yeah, but even like, him, because of all of that, you know, because of everyone else around him. It's yeah, like, I could I could yeah. see his numbers you know, falling a little bit. Debo and Ayuk are basically the same athlete. I don't want to call him the same player yet because Debo proved that he's pretty good. But then you got Jennings and Hurd and Mostert and Coleman and McKinnon and friggin' unbelievable. Anyway. <laughs>